be looking at 1 Samuel, the last two verses of 15, and then chapter 16. But before we do that, let us together seek the Lord's favor. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Samuel and David. We pray, God, that as we begin to look at um, the man who had a heart after you, that we too, Lord, would, would learn what it means to pursue you, to have a heart for you, to love like you, um, to love like David, to repent like David, Lord, to fight for the kingdom like David, um, to, to be a faithful son like David. We know, Lord God, that um, his greater son has, has come, has lived amongst us, has died, has risen, has ascended. And we pray, God, that as, as um, now Jesus is the Rosetta Stone, that, that helps us to go back and look at stories like this today and understand them more deeply. And I pray, God, that we would go from here, that we would have a deeper passion, Lord, not only for you, but for our neighbor, that we would be overwhelmed with love for you and love for one another. And we pray, Lord God, that you would go before us and protect us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. We thank you and we praise you and amen. Now, oddly enough, if we're going to understand 1 Samuel better, what we actually have to do is turn to 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter. Now, what I like to, uh, sometimes I like to think of the Bible as actually an Old Testament study Bible, where all the, the notes in the New Testament are what help us understand the Old Testament. And uh, this is how I think about it. The apostles are the ones who are teaching us what the Old Testament has to do with Jesus. Jesus said, the Old Testament's about me. And the apostles explain it. They, they tell us not only uh, what, what the Gospels mean for us, but what, what, what the Old Testament means for us, what the Old Testament means. Now, we, we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. At his resurrection, Jesus became the firstborn of a new humanity. His resurrection has secured our salvation by God's mercy and power. You have been remade. You. And you possess a rich inheritance, it tells us. A new Lord, a new heart, a new life, a new people. Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels longed to look. Now that is a very long passage. It's a very confusing one. The good news of Jesus was revealed by the prophets in types and shadows, serving, they, and as they kept track of it, as Augustine calls them, Augustine calls the Jews the, the bookshelf people. <laughs> they were carrying the Old Testament along with them. They were carrying these books that belonged to us more so than to any other people who have ever lived. The New Testament saints own these books. And, and what, what we're saying here is the, the prophets themselves were, were writing things and staring hard at them and, and in them trying to see the picture of the Savior. Who is going to come and crush Satan's head? Who is going to come and give us a kingdom 
that will last forever. Who is going to deliver us from this body of death? And they couldn't see it. So they served us by holding on to the book. You know, somebody's going to be able to get this at some point. So we're going to hang on to these and we're going to deliver them to them. And then they will be able to look into these things that even angels long to look into and they will understand them. They tried to comprehend their own writings and couldn't. The angels looked at what God was doing and looked at what God was writing and they didn't understand it. What is God doing? His conspiracy against his enemies was so complex that angels themselves, right, spiritual beings that, that stand before God all day long, who look upon his face all day long, they look at the scriptures and they don't understand. This salvation has been given to you. The salvation that angels long to look at, that the prophets tried to figure out and couldn't. That salvation, that story has been given to you. It is available for you to look in for you to understand more fully. And at this we ought to tremble. At this we ought to tremble and at what is revealed about our identity in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 19. You, you, every one of you, were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The blood of Christ is the most valuable commodity in the world, even though there is enough of it to redeem the entire world. Now, what other commodity retains its value when the supply is infinite? Right? The, when we find a whole bunch of oil, the more oil there is, you see the price per gallon, go right? The price per barrel go down until the government gets their hands on it. What other commodity is endless and yet is the most valuable thing? The Lord's wealth is greater than our poverty. His reasoning is greater than ours. We can hardly comprehend what he has done for us in Jesus, what he's done for the world, what he's done for humanity. You, you are a chosen race, a chosen royal priestly proclaiming people in the light of the Lord's revealed salvation. That's who you are. Now look around. Look around. We're not Gnostics. When I say look around, I mean it. This is a chosen, royal, priestly, proclaiming people. Behold. Behold it and be dazzled. You are children of the king. You are all princes and princesses. Right? Fix the tiara. Adjust it. You are princes and princesses. We, though Gentiles, all of us, well, except for Molly, she apparently descends from the one of the royal tribes. Oh, Eric? Okay, besides Eric, the rest of us are Gentiles. <laughs> right? We were as far from the people of God as you could get. And look, here we are. And so when we look at stories like the anointing of David, 
it, 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 with its pageantry and, and with the various details that are going on, we think that it has nothing to do with us. But Peter says, no, these are the things that, that the prophets themselves did not understand. These are the things that the angels long to understand. And we go and we look at them and we can understand them. But what I find to be so frustrating in my own life is that I'm not nearly as impressed. I'm not nearly as impressed. Right? I was just having this conversation with some of my children this week. I'm going to be a little bit more vague about who. And they like roll their eyes and they're like, oh, here we go. We're starting Leviticus. <laughs> right? We read the Old Testament we're like, oh no, a genealogy. Who are these people? I can't pronounce these names. And yet when we look at those stories in the Old Testament, we can understand them. We can see what the angels long to see, that this is about Jesus. How then should you live? That, that's, how, that's actually the last thing that I say before I leave here. Given everything that I've just said, how then should you live? You are sons and daughters of the living God. You are princesses and, prince, and princes in the kingdom of heaven. Well, luckily, <laughs> the book has been handed down to us. We can open up 1 Samuel and turn to chapter 16, and we can see exactly what, right? We can see what it is to be the children of God. We can see what it is to be a king and queen in Narnia. So we turn there now, 1 Samuel chapter 15. We begin in verse 35. I'm going to go through uh, to verse 1 of chapter 16. This is what it says, okay? Let, let's start to open this up and see what it is that the angels long to see. Let's see what it is that the prophets themselves could not comprehend from their own writings. It says, Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel sorrowed over Saul's rebellion and rejection. Samuel shows a deep affection for both Saul and Israel. He's grieved over what's happened to Saul He's, and, and what it means for the entire nation. Kingship looked so promising, but it has ended in Saul's rebellion against the Lord. God's people might self-destruct. This is why Samuel is so worried. He sees that the king has failed, and what's going to happen now? He remembers judges, and he remembers what happened when the land had no king. He, rem he remembers the rebellion and the chaos and the violence of a leaderless people. When the enemy ravaged Israel, when there was civil war, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, he doesn't want that time to come back. Samuel was distressed over the spiritual disaster of a promising leader, over the welfare of God's people, over their condition and their security. And my question is this. Do we mourn over such matters? Do we mourn or do we gossip? Do we mourn or do we accuse? Do we mourn or do we condemn? Samuel is distraught over what, what has happened to Saul and what it means for the people of God. Does it cause us to mourn? When we look at the state of the church in the United States, at the state of the church in the world, do we see the leaderless people wandering around with no shepherd? And do we grieve over it? Or do we just take to Facebook? <laughs> oh, look at those guys now, those idiots. When is the last time you wept over the state of the church? Mark chapter 6, 
Verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now, how often... Right? You go to a, well, we can't really go to baseball games anymore, I suppose. Well, when we, when we can again. Next time you see a whole horde of people, you just think, think, who is leading these people? And does that cause you to mourn? Are we mourning over the, over the leaderless masses that are wandering around out there in darkness? Now, what is revealed in this passage is that the true king never loses control of his kingdom. Never. He's never bewildered by emergencies or disasters within his realm. Yahweh, he instills hope, right? Saul has fallen. Samuel is distraught. The Lord God is not. (laughs) He says, okay, well, we'll move on to the next plan now, the next phase of my conspiracy. Yahweh's orders answer Samuel's grief and fears. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you, I will do it to Jesse, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Well, how did God know? How did God know to provide himself for a king when he had a king already? Because he's God, right? I mean, he knew what was going to happen. He plans and prepares for it. And we often forget this. When we see what's going on, we think, oh no, oh no. What is God going to do now? How is he possibly going to fix this? And then it turns out he ha- <laughs> he's had a plan since before we were born. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing throws him off his game. Yahweh is saying, how long will you mourn for Saul? I have provided for myself a king. I will not allow the cycle of dissipation and destruction of the judges to return. I am going to provide new leadership. I have not looked away from my people. He sees them. And that's what this whole chapter is about. It talks about the Lord seeing seven or eight different ways. He sees. And when he sees, he knows. He knows what's going on, he sees what's going on, and he is out in front of it. Remember what Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, Samuel said that to Saul on behalf of God, and yet here he is distressing over what's going to happen. And isn't this us, right? We can come in here and I'm talking about the fact that nothing happens apart from God's will and nothing throws him off his game and we will go out of here and we will have a flat tire and be like, what is this nonsense, right? God, didn't you know? Couldn't you have stopped it? We so easily forget, just like Samuel, and and we fall again into grief over, over some things that we don't need to worry about because God's got it. Now, Yahweh has given him instructions, and he he further reveals what his plan is. In chapter 16, verses 2 through 5, it says this, And Samuel said, "How, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and came to Bethlehem, The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, if Samuel were to make an unexpected journey, especially one to a location outside of his normal judicial circuit, people will notice, especially Saul, 
Saul at this point is very jealous. He, 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 he knows that God has rejected him. He does not trust Samuel. He doesn't trust very many people. We know that anyone who does anything outside of, right? What did he want to do to Jonathan who ate honey when he said don't eat any food? He wanted to put him to death. Saul is a dangerous man to anybody who wants to obey God. And so Samuel says, well, you know, I, I can't just go anywhere. If, if I go wandering around anointing people, Saul's going to find out about it, and Saul's going to have my head on a spigot. Saul would certainly view Samuel's actions for what they actually are, a threat to his own throne. Now, like Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Elijah, so many others, God's choice, God's call is a call to danger. Now think about this for a moment. The thing that he wants Samuel to do could possibly get him put to death. Now, isn't that a wonderful plan for his life? <laughs> Yahweh has such a wonderful plan for Samuel. Here, go and risk death. And, and, and this highlights what is so confusing to so many of us because we think we're called to comfort. We think we're called to easy, safe selfishness. If God really loved Samuel, wouldn't he just let him retire to the, you know, out to his, to his vineyard? Just let him be at peace? No, he says, you are my son. You are going to go and you are going to fulfill my plans for Israel, which are greater than anything you can imagine. And yes, it might cost you your head. Requiring a faith and a trust, requiring self-renunciation. Remember what it says in Job chapter 5, verse 7. This is something that we like to say in our house. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Moms, <laughs> your sweet boys, they were born for trouble. And they will be trouble. The question is, what kind of trouble are you teaching them to be? The right kind of trouble or the wrong kind of trouble? In a world full of dangerous men, the only thing, or dangerous bad men, the only thing that's going to stop them are dangerous good men. Right? And, and this is, again, if, if <laughs> I want to make T-shirts for the Claus family that says that. The only cure for bad men is good, dangerous bad men is dangerous good men. David would be a rival to Saul, his entire household, and is what we're going to see after chapter 18. It, it, it causes all kinds of trouble. Saul is, is going to be after David until the end of the book. He wants David's head. He hates David. He hates David's popularity. He hates David's success. He hates da David and Jonathan's relationship. He hates David. So all of this caution here makes sense. And yet God doesn't say, oh, no, I can't send my kids into harm's way. Right? I, I can't just send them down to the park. I've got to go to the park with them, and I've got to hover over them and make sure that they don't get hurt in any way, shape, or form. And this is the form of modern parenting, right? the helicopter moms. And it's a question we have to ask ourselves. Would you rather your children live a long and full and blessed life, have all the money, all the success, and lose their soul? Or would you rather have faithful children who die young? Samuel knows that Saul was willing to use Jonathan as a scapegoat to maintain his position, and so he knows that Saul is dangerous to anyone who obeys Yahweh. And the Lord has no qualms about sending his Samuel into danger if that danger means obedience. So parents, think about it. Do you want your kids to be faithful or do you want them to be safe? Now, oh, Mike, what are you, what are you talking about? So we're just going to drop my kid off onto the freeway? <laughs> Say, hey, go be a man. 
No, that's not what I'm talking about. But as parents, right, we don't want bad things to happen to our kids. We, we want them to be safe all the time, even at the cost of obedience. And it's something that we have to consider. God has no problem with it, and neither should we. Man was born for trouble. Now, what's really fascinating here, and this is another one that just throws us a curveball, is that Yahweh provides Samuel with a cover story. He provides Samuel with the means of deception. He's not just sending his son Samuel there to anoint this new person without some sort of cover story. Now, as a Levitical judge, Samuel has authority to sacrifice a heifer to atone for an unsolved murder committed in a rural region. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 21. When you uh, have an unsolved murder, you measure to the nearest town, and then you offer a red heifer, and, and, you, and you atone for the dead body. And this actually, of all the stuff, I could not figure out why everyone freaks out when, when Samuel shows up. The elders come out, and they meet Samuel, they're like, oh, no, it's you. And I figured it was always the hacking of a gag was why. But I mean, you know, just because he hacks up a gag doesn't mean he's going to, Samuel is not known for just walking around hacking up anybody. But here he comes with a red heifer. He's the religious leader of Israel. And, and, and they don't know why he's there. And they think, oh man, was there a murder? They're a little terrified about him coming there in the way that he's coming there because, because the deception works. It's unclear exactly what Samuel is doing. Further, the elders were likely awed by Samuel's formidable reputation. They know that he follows God. He knows that they know that he obeys him. They know that his ways and God's ways are not theirs. And so he shows up with this red heifer, and they're not sure what's going on, and, the, and their response to it is fear. Samuel was going to Bethlehem for a sacrifice, but that was not the whole truth. This is the first of many deceptions that David and his allies will use in their struggle against Saul. And it is important to note that this strategy was proposed by Yahweh himself. The primary conspirator against the conspiracy of death is God. And, and when David later employed deception to parry Saul's threats and conspiracies, we're going to see. At one point, David's going to pretend to be mad. At another point, he's going to be, pretend to be friends with the Philistines. And they say, okay, go out and and kill Israelites. He says, okay. And he goes out and he kills Philistines and kills everybody so there's no witnesses. And he actually does more damage to the Philistines than any other Israelite. And, and all kinds of modern people, modern Christians, struggle with what he does. It's why we struggle with the patriarchs. Why, why, why is um, Isaac's son tricking him the way that he's doing, putting on this, this red cloth, and, and they're tricking him into getting the, the blessing that God said would be his? Remember this, Jacob? The trickster, everyone is very confused about these Old Testament stories because we're confused about what deception is. And there is a difference between deception and lying. I remember I, told, I, taught, I taught my seventh graders this in a Bible class. Maybe it was a little over their head. Um, maybe they weren't ready yet for this level of ethics. Because then I got a lot of calls from parents like, my kids are lying to me now, saying that they're calling it deception. I was like, well, that's not what I meant. Right? If you're, if you're, if there is a difference between bearing false witness and running a play-action play. A, a play action pass. Now for you ladies, sorry, play action pass. That's where they pretend to hand it to the running back and then at the last second pull it out and throw it downfield. And I love it. It's a beautiful thing, especially when it, it tricks even the cameraman. Have you ever been watching football and they're like, oh, wait. Now God in heaven, his favorite play is a play action pass. He loves it because he loves deception. Oh, okay, well, we can't go right at, you know, we're not going to come right at them. We're going to trick them. 
We're going to conspire against them, Samuel. So what I want you to do is take this cow and, go, and take it with you, and we're going to just confuse everybody. And all along, he has a plan. He knows exactly what he's doing. And, and this way of doing things is very difficult to understand always. Jesus said to his own disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in, in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Right? Don't go out and sin, but be wise, be cunning. And don't we live in an age where we need some cunning? There are things that we had not thought about before 2020 that we're thinking about now. And so now what we got to do is take that as a lesson. What's the next thing coming? How are you all going to feel about a black market when it starts? It's an honest, ethical question. At what level will you participate? We could get a pretty good thing going, by the way, if anybody's down for this idea. I'm, I'm down for this idea. I've worked out the ethics for myself. So if you guys, when it comes time for you need some sugar, come see me. <laughs> but these are things we have to think about. And, and we have to think about it biblically. God has no problem tricking the enemy. Right? And, 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 there were, and we have well-meaning family members in the, in the house of God. Right? There are those who would not hide Jews under the stairs because it was lying. You know, and it saddens me. But we have to understand, there are people who think, right, they take the Ten Commandments seriously. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And then we get to a story like this, apparently God, this isn't bearing false witness. So it requires some wisdom to understand the difference. And again, the time is coming where registered firearms might not be a thing that you can have. So how about some unregistered ones? Again, if you need one, come see me. <laughs> the people of God ought to be wise and cunning and holy. And that combination, ladies and gentlemen, is very difficult. And, and we all ought to start thinking more in depth about what that means in the age in which we live. Now, here we go. Samuel has his plan. Let's see how it goes. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6 through 10. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Here he is. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Jesse's sons enter, and with a look, Samuel has an immediate, intuitive hunch about who it is that Yahweh has chosen. He thinks he sees what God sees. But before Samuel could uncork the horn and pour, start pouring oil on Eliab's head, the Lord intervened. Eliab's not Israel's king. Then the Lord uttered one of the most important statements in all of Scripture regard, regarding divine choosing and human discernment. The Lord alone has the capacity to observe and judge a, person, a person's heart, that is, one's thoughts, one's emotions, one's intents. On God's scales, these matter outweigh all other aspects of human life. Outward appearance me means nothing to the Lord. The heart matters, right? And, and again, this, we've talked about this before. You know, God doesn't care about sacrifices. He cares about a contrite heart. Well, then why did he go through all that trouble to explain all of this complicated stuff about offering sacrifices? 
Well, because once the heart's right, he does care about outward appearances. But when, when we start looking, what do we look with? We look with our eyes, and we judge with our eyes, and, and we see what we can see, and, and we think that's all there is. We think we're very wise. We think we're very understanding. Oh, I, I have all the understanding in the world about this person and this situation and what's going on. The Lord alone has the capacity to observe and judge a person's heart. On God's scales, these matter outweigh all other aspects. Yahweh instructs Samuel not to look on what he can see. What, man's, what man sees does not matter, for man sees only to the eyes. Yahweh sees to the heart. This entire episode is built around the Lord's seeing. The Lord sees hearts, which men cannot. The Lord sees the conspiracy of life that eludes the prophets, the salvation that's coming that eludes the angels. The Lord's piercing gaze predominates this entire story. He can see it all. We are given the ability to see what would have happened had Samuel been left to himself. He would have chosen another Saul. That's what he would have done. We go back um, from 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 23 through 24. Remember, this is what we read about Saul. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the other people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. So here Samuel comes to this new family, and he sees this tall, good-looking young man, and he thinks, Surely this is going to be the king. And what you almost have is Saul part two. Eliab is created in Saul's image after his likeness, and if Yahweh had not chosen the king, Israel would have suffered the same catastrophe all over again. And this is a crucial moment in the history of Israel. In 1 Samuel, so many things hang on the choices of men. They, uh, Israel decided to send out the ark. Israel chose a king in chapter 8. And here, godly Samuel is now on the scene, and surely, surely, after everything he's done, we can trust him, can't we? Isn't he going to make the, a wise decision? But the kingdom is only safe in the hands of Yahweh. We cannot put our faith in people, even Samuel, to, to ultimately control what goes on. And, and this is why looking to Supreme Court justices and looking to presidents and looking to candidates and looking on the outward appearance of men, that they're going to save us, that they're going to lead us, we can never put things fully in man's hands. We always have to leave them in the Lord's hands. He's the only one that we can fully trust. As soon as we forget him and we start thinking, oh, these guys got it figured out, we're going to follow them, everything starts to fall apart. First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will be found by, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Proverbs 21, 1 through 2, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Now, what does that mean? That means we ought to start praying for the hearts of our leaders. Pray, right? They're, they're, they're like a river in the Lord's hands. Right? We, we, we fear men, and we look to them to save us, and there, God, there the living God is with the, the heart of Joe Biden in his hand saying, Go left. Go right, go left, go right, now up, now down, flow more, stop flowing. He controls everything. And, and so we have to stop looking 
One, men to save us, and two, men to destroy us. Look beyond the men. The one who has every heart in his hands is God. Sometimes Yahweh has to save us from our self-chosen saviors and solutions to kingdom need and personal limits. This is why we're praying so the way we're praying about a building. Just because we can, should we? (laughs) And just because we think we ought to, oughtn't we? We don't know. But you know who knows? The Lord. And that's how every decision in your life will be made. That's how we ought to think about the nation and the church and what's going on. It's the Lord who directs the hearts of men. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11, we see that the Lord knew all along who he had in store for Israel. Chapter 16, verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Samuel has met seven sons, and the decision has been clear. None of these are the one I'm looking for. None of these are the ones I've chosen. My question is, why wasn't he invited in the first place? I mean, David later on seems like a pretty decent guy. <laughs> He's not invited to the party, right? This, uh, the, we were eat, sitting down to eat dinner recently, and I noticed one of the smallest amongst us was not there. And it's because, oh, we, we forgot he's out back. <laughs> he's playing out there, and we're having a good time in here, and we don't really know. And that's, right, younger siblings, you know what I'm talking about. We overlook the little one. Now Samuel says, send and get him. Samuel suddenly realizes, because at first he was a little confused. Wait, you said you were going to pick a king from these guys. You, I've seen all the guys, and you didn't pick one, so what's up? He has to ask the question, Well, right? He doesn't immediately turn to God and say, what's wrong with you? He turns to Jesse and says, okay, where's the other one? Okay, now, we're, now if he's the only one left, all these other guys have been rejected. We're not doing anything until he comes. No shepherd, no food. And, and at this point, we don't even know the kid's name. There's just some scrawny little guy out there with the flocks, and this is the one that God is calling forth. He came, sheep smell and all. Right? Everybody else has been consecrated. Everybody else has been cleaned up. Everybody else is wearing robes, and I like it. Here comes David, and he just wanders right in there smelling like sheep poop. <laughs> Psalm 78, verse 70 through 72. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing hues. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Right? This is what the Lord saw. The Lord looked out on his people and he saw this little runt of a guy loving his sheep, nursing them and caring for them. And, and right, He has compassion uh, on this flock that has otherwise no leader. And, and God said, yeah, no, don't, I've, I've done the tall, handsome thing. Give me the scrawny kid who loves his sheep. And that's what the Lord sees that nobody else can see. And so Jesse runs and gets him. It says in verse 12 through 13, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now there is a little confusion here. We've got to say this. We, we might conclude from verse seven that God opposes an attractive appearance, right? Earlier he rejected these other good looking young guys. But now it says, wait, now it says that uh, David was a good-looking kid. Because the emphasis isn't on his, his physical beauty. Apparently, this is a pretty good-looking family, <laughs> right? If you would have taken any of them, there would have been a good-looking kid. The, the emphasis here is on how small he is. 
He's the smallest of all the sons, it says. He's the littlest. He's the one that nobody even thought to invite to the big party. The, the head honcho of Israel's here and whatever. He's, he's out there. He's having fun with, it, with his little pets. So we'll just leave him out there. It's, a, it's on his smallness, not his attractiveness. External appearance neither qualifies nor disqualifies anyone. It simply doesn't matter. The youngest was not deemed worthy enough to call in to the sheepfold. The Lord has a way of choosing the, per- the person people think the least likely to be chosen. Nobody in Jesse's house thought that he, right? right? We don't even, Samuel doesn't care about that guy. We don't even need him. And that's the one that God chose. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. What does David have to boast in? He's the scrawniest runt of the litter. What he boasts in is the fact that the Lord chose him. What he boasts in is now the Lord is the one who's anointed him. It's all the work of the Lord. This selection of David was entirely the Lord's doing, and this is how David thinks of it. In Psalm 22, verse 9 and 10, it says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. That was David's testimony. He had always known the Lord, and so the Lord knows him. Parents, right? Cast your children upon the Lord from the womb. We see God's strange and refreshing way of trampling down human standards here. Again, we see how Yahweh chooses the most unlikely people to do his will, and he frequently stands human logic on its head, and he has not changed. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Lavoli, the foolish, the despised. He's talking about you. Nothing's changed, right? Now, some of us are pretty good looking. But is that what God looks at, right? Are we, were we chosen because we're so handsome? Were we chosen because we were so wise? Were we chosen because we had so much to offer the kingdom of heaven? When we're reading this story, the scrawny runt of the litter that was chosen to be king, that's a story about you. Because <laughs> you're princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. Our God does not give thought to human conventions. Now, perhaps at no time did the living God disclose a more flabbergasting choice than in the case of David's greater descendant, Jesus. The vote was in by all, right, by the entire nation of Israel. The folks in Jesus' hometown said he's just one of us in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. This can't possibly be the Messiah. I, I know his sister, right? I know the family. That's not this guy. Come on. Others complained that he partied too hard. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 11, 18 and 19, yeah, he's just a drunkard. He just likes, right? he just likes to sit at the table and eat. Others objected that he's not from the right place, right? Nothing good comes from that small town. But the clincher for many was that messiahs don't suffer, right? Those who are anointed by God don't suffer. So when they saw Jesus on the cross and said, certainly, after all, all these other proofs, here is the final one. Because this couldn't possibly be the son of God. This poss- couldn't possibly be the messiah. This couldn't possibly be the anointed one. 
But what do we know? What do we know? Mark chapter 1, verse 9 and 12. The things the angels long to understand. The thing that the prophet Samuel would have loved to have been told. You mean when I'm talking about anointing David, I'm really talking about anointing Jesus? I'm really talking about anointing Yahweh? Yahweh's coming out of the deep heavens to, to get washed in a river? Do you know what Samuel would have done if he would have done that? He would have been shocked. And then he would have laughed. And then he would have said. And, and what do we do when we hear it? How accustomed to it are we? How old hat has it become to us? Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 12. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The stone that the, that the people of Israel rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? His people, he came to his people and his people did not receive him, we read in John. And in Psalm 118, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We should delight in Yahweh's unusual, unguessable ways. Right? What do you, the, I'm telling you, Samuel's in heaven just tickled pink that this is actually what happened. He's like, oh, Archangel Michael, can you believe it? This is the thing we were waiting to see. Look, there's Jesus. It's God. He's being washed in a river. That's unbelievable. It says in Psalm 126, right? This is how we ought to respond to shocking things that God does. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Pinch me, am I awake? Is this what the Lord is doing? This deliverance? Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. When the Lord does something unpredictable, it ought to bring from his children delighted laughter. When he does the thing no one is expecting. Now, how often do we sit there and see the thing that God has done that we weren't expecting and giggle? Does it delight us? Be like, you know what? I thought I had it figured out, but man, the plan is better. Now, what? Now, now why, don't, why don't we do that? Because going back, right, because we're confused about the fact that God would ever send us into trouble. Wait, the thing that God really wanted me to do is lose my house? Ha, ha, ha! What a plan! Said no one ever. Right? You have... You, <laughs> all kinds of things happen to us. And rarely do we think, man, he came out of left field with that one, and this is going to be glorious to see what he does now. Because what we think about is ourselves, what we think about is our kingdoms, what we think about is our comfort. The onrush of the Spirit of the Lord ensured that David was divinely equipped for whatever the future might hold for him. In receiving the Spirit, David was receiving a down payment on the kingdom, just as we do according to Ephesians 1. Yahweh equips David for conflict, one that will frequently make brawls with lions and bears seem dull. <laughs> David will have circumstances in which he thought, man, I wish I could just go back to hang out with my sheep and fight some lions because it'd be easier. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that? Like, man, three kids. Three kids was nothing compared to six. <laughs> Do you ever think, oh, I wish I could go back. It would be so much easier. Why do we do that? Was it? <laughs> was it easier? Or did you have no idea, right? You had no idea, and you thought the same thing then. Man, if we could just go back to having one. If I could just go back to that other job. If we, could, if we, if we would have just taken a left instead of a right. 
everything would have worked out and everything would have been great. David, the man with the spirit, will be hunted, he will be betrayed, he will be trapped, he will live in caves, he will live in exile, he'll be driven to the edge, right to the end of 1 Samuel. We must see this larger view of verse 13 in the context of the whole thing. The spirit comes, and with it comes trouble. Right? Lord God, please, rend heaven and pour your spirit out on your people. I pray this all the time. The other day I was thinking, like, actually, (laughs) wait. Wait, if it leads us into trouble, do we want that? And we all think, eh, maybe not. And our, our prayers aren't as fervent as they were. Because we don't have a heart after God like David. Do you think David said, you know, David, there he is. Oh, I got the spirit of God now? Man, I was troubled before. Watch how much trouble I'm going to be now. And, and that, right, is a man who's, who's loving God and pursuing God. Let's go get in some trouble. Now I'm well armed. So it was for David's son and David's Lord. What could be more encouraging than seeing the spirit coming down as a dove? As a dove? Right? There's Jesus. It's like, oh, look at this sweet little dove coming down. So cute. What could be more warming to your heart than that familiar voice of your father? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then what happened? The spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He's baptized, he receives the Spirit, and the first thing that happens is he's sent into the wilderness. He says, here, there are wild beasts and Satan and temptation. And again, we have the same, right? We go back, we read this story about David. It's just, it's the thing that happened to Jesus. The Spirit, when the Spirit of God descends upon his people, he's preparing them for trouble. Paul sought in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, this is what he sought in his ministry to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. No sooner are we brought into subjection to Jesus than we are swamped in trouble. There may seem no end to the pressures, no relief from the pounding that we're taking from the left and the right. But if we remember David and his descendant Jesus, we begin to see that conflict is not a sign of our sin, but a mark of our sonship. Given our current circumstances, we should have never felt so alive as we do now. Look at all the trouble that we're in. They're shutting churches down. They don't want us gathering. We, we are now fighting in, in elder boards all over America about whether or not we should wear masks. And, and we think, right? And then do we go home and be like, you know what we need is more of this. Right? Because so many Christians say a little too quickly, well, that winnowing fork is out now. Right Now the Lord's out there winnowing. We're going to separate some wheat and chaff. Well, what if you're the chaff? <laughs> are, you, are you, oh, you think they're the chaff. Oh, huh, okay. Anointing and trouble describe the spiritual basis of Jesus' entire ministry. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And we all say, amen. But then what did he go do? He obeyed unto death. We love the liberty part. Oh, let's I'm going to get a blog and I'm going to get a vlog and I'm going to talk about liberty, liberty, liberty. Okay, go do some dying. 
You want to set some captives free? Go do some dying to yourself. You're too comfortable. You are far, far, far too comfortable for who you are. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Messiah means the anointed one. That's what Christ means. It means the anointed one. And for those who are anointed, those who receive the Spirit, go out into the wilderness. They go out and find some trouble. And this is who you are. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 1 John 2.20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. You were too small. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we ought that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You are the anointed of the Lord. You have the spirit of the Lord. Are you in trouble? Are you in the midst of a great deal of trouble? Or are you safe and comfortable and warm, and well-fed. Now, wait a minute, Mike, come on. So I got, what what I do, burn my house down, give away my cards, go live under the bridge with my son? Remember, I dropped him off there earlier because I wanted him to be a man. Is that that what I'm saying? How dare you be comfortable ever? How dare you have money? How dare you have jobs? Is Is that really what I'm saying? No, because there's this whole wing of Christianity where it's, you know, it's all about the radical thing. You've got to be as radical as possible. But how many people like us that shouldn't? How many people who ought to be threatened by us are not threatened by us at all? If no one hates you, you're not trying. <laughs> right? And, and as I was recently told, and amen to this, right? Again, you want to see us cause, I'll go outside right now and start screaming on the street and cause some trouble. I'll get the cops down here. It'll be great. Is that the kind of trouble I mean? No. Let the lion out of the cage. Take up the word of God. Study it. See the thing that the angels long to see and go and live according to the principles in here, being the people that God has anointed. The word of God will do all of the offending. You don't need to try. Trust me. But we're too afraid. We get confused. We think they're the same thing. Oh, you can't offend people. You can't possibly offend people. Well, okay, you're right. I shouldn't offend people. There's a couple of different choice words I could drop right now and offend everyone in the room. And that's not what I'm talking about. Right? But you all are far too comfortable. I have no problem saying that. And that's the difference. What do you need to say? What do you need to do that you aren't saying and aren't doing? You're looking around and everything is just peachy keen. And if so, there's a problem. There's a big problem.
Through this calling and concentration, uh, consecration, Jesus, the rejected stone, has established a new household. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And going back to where we started, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Those are all verbs. Did you notice how many verbs were in that verse? Like David, you were all overlooked by the power brokers of this world, but not by God. God in heaven sees you. He knows you. He has given you a heart after him. He has given you a new heart that in his estimation is worthy to look upon. Think about that. He knows who you are. He sees you. He has given you a heart that pleases him to look upon. And he says, go, anoint them. Give them the spirit. Go out and, and send them into some trouble. Send them into the wilderness. You can look upon the salvation that the prophets and angels could not see. The angels longed to see how God would fix this broken world. The prophets stared hard at their own words and in them strained to see the picture of Jesus. Both longed to see the salvation long planned, excellently executed, and graciously given to you. To you. It is open to you. Do you long to look at it? Do you get tired of looking at it? Do you strive to understand it more fully? Or you think, nah, it's a genealogy. I don't know why there's genealogies, 10 of them in Genesis. It makes the book seem a little long. How, how, how wearisome a people we can be. And that salvation is God through Christ making a kingdom of Davids out of Jews and Gentiles. A household of small things made large. By the will of the Father and the blood of the Son and the power of the Spirit, you, you who were nothing, who, you were no one. No one gave you a thought, and God did. He saw you, he knew you, he gave you a heart that he delights to look upon. He stands over you and sings, he puts his spirit on you, he makes you one with himself. That's who you are. He looks upon you, the angels look, the prophets look, and they all are astounded, and in their astonishment they praise him. Do you? And now because he looks upon you, you have a heart worthy to be looked upon. You are a person. You are someone. And you can look upon him and comprehend what the prophets and angels couldn't. Knowing that, knowing all of this, knowing this, what has got to go? Right? This isn't one of those sermons where I'm going to tell you what's got to go. I just told you <laughs> who you are in the light of the living God. You what needs to go? What needs to stop? What rumbling, grumbling, gut ache of bitterness needs to go? 
What hatreds, what disobedience, what sins, what delights, what idols need to go now? You're the people of God. You have his spirit. You are his children. And there is all kinds of stuff in your life. You are comfortable and you are, your houses are full and your hearts are full and your heads are full of all the wrong stuff. What is kingly and ladylike behavior look like in a holy household established by Christ's atoning blood? What does it look like? A cheerful house, a winsome house, an obedient house. You are a chosen royal priestly proclaiming people who live in the light of the revealed salvation of Jesus Christ. Can you see it? Does it dazzle you? Do you, do you see it in one another? in yourselves, in your spouses, in your children? Do you see it? You can look into God's word and you can know, and by his spirit, his anointing, be and become like the greater David Jesus. 1 Samuel 16 is a foreshadowing of your own calling and consecration, for it foreshadows Jesus Christ, and you are in him. You have his spirit. He delights in you. What has got to go? What has got to change? Do we need to go and make some trouble? Who's with me? Anybody? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go cause some trouble. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Lord God, who delighted to obey you even unto death. He delighted in the world you made. He delighted in the people you made. Lord, he had compassion on, on the masses He befriended those who hated you. He made a people out of a lot lot of nobodies who were not a people. We thank you, Lord. We pray that as we go from here that we would, in our own hearts, our own minds, and our own households, be dazzled by what we can and see and comprehend in the word of God. Let us be renewed with a right spirit. Let us fall in love with Jesus all over again. Let us know what it means to be the people of God, what it what it means to have his spirit. And Lord God, make us troublesome. Amen.